VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? With respect to virtual worlds, if you choose to go into one and present yourself as an avatar there, you're sort of faced with a what ends up being, in retrospect, I didn't think this at the beginning, what ends up being a pretty binary choice, which mm. is you can either be the real you, like the one that's sitting on the couch in front of me right now, or you can be that avatar, but you can't be both. Hello, and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you guys for tuning in. We are in the car together right now. I'm on my way to interview Philip Rosedale. He is the founder of Linden Lab, or the company you may have heard of, uh, Second Life, if you're of a certain age anyway. Second Life is the original, the OG metaverse company. And I wanted to talk to him because everybody from Mark Zuckerberg to Satya Nadella at Microsoft, Roblox, everybody's talking about how the metaverse is the next big thing on the internet. This is the future, a world in which we all live in these kind of virtual worlds. We're represented by avatars. We live online. We make money online. We have our whole avatar life online. It's kind of the science fiction vision come to life. And Philip did this before all these guys were talking about it, back when Zuckerberg was uh, still in short pants. So they started Second Life way back in, well, Linden Lab in 1999. And at its height, Second Life in the mid 2000 aughts was quite literally the most talked about tech company on the planet by some measures. It was this huge kind of phenomenon. You know, they had uh, virtual worlds, they had avatars, they have a whole virtual economy turning over hundreds of millions of dollars a year they had nfts before that was a thing the whole kind of digital world that they set up that grew and at its height it had a million people um, using it every month and what's crazy is that it's still happening today second life still exists and still has about a million users a month and a whole economy that turns over hundreds of millions of dollars today and I just thought it would be great to speak with Philip because he has a perspective that probably no one else has in terms of this idea, this metaverse idea that has kind of swept through Silicon Valley and the tech industry around, you know, is this realistic? Are we all going to be living in virtual worlds? Are you going to be represented by some kind of avatar in the not too distant future? Is Zuckerberg's vision of Facebook becoming a quote-unquote metaverse company within the next five years realistic? Or is it based on some kind of over-egged, tech-centric vision of the future? So, Philip has just a really good perspective of kind of the highs and lows, the drawbacks we might not be thinking about and everything in between. And he's just really, really thoughtful about this stuff. And... So I'm driving to his house to talk to him about the metaverse. So I'm going to get out and go knock on his door and sit down with him. So strap in. We're about to talk all things metaverse with Philip Rosedale, the founder of Second Life, the original metaverse company. Cool. Well, first of all, thank you for letting me hang out in your house. 
Absolutely. Good to have you. <laughs> so we spoke a couple weeks ago about the metaverse and you had some just amazing perspective on this. So I wanted to just kind of talk a bit about some of those issues that, that we first covered a couple weeks ago for the pod, because of course, everybody from Mark Zuckerberg to Satya Nadella to the CEO of Roblox, whose name escapes me right now. David. Yeah. Metaverse is the future. This is where the internet is going, et cetera, supposedly. But I'd love to get a sense from you of if we can start in the past, because as you say, we've in a way seen this movie before, and you've actually created this movie and directed this movie. <laughs> um, but if you could just talk about Second Life, uh, briefly describing what it is, when it started, and what it is now, and I think that would just really give people a sense of kind of what we're talking about. Sure. Um... Well, I was a computer programmer as a kid just, just before the internet or right. a few years before the internet. So the PC was a thing that was very available to me, you know, unlike my slightly older, you know, somebody like Steve Jobs or, or Bill Gates, you know, where the PC happened while they yeah. were becoming uh, productive as, say, entrepreneurs. And for me, it was the internet. And I had a background in physics as well. And so I was really fascinated by emergent simulated systems you know that was kind of the thing i loved was this sort of sim city idea of mm. like could you simulate the atoms of a digital world in such a way that it would kind of grow and give rise to a lot of complicated interesting stuff like cities or yeah you know people kind of debating so to speak you know you know kind of having conversations of uh, and arguments over what to build and yeah. so I, I was fascinated by that idea and i really started with the kind of lego block idea not not of avatars and people but more of like the landscape of a virtual world and so i always wanted to do that i wanted to do it from the early 90s you know even before snow crash the book was written i was yeah. i was thinking about these simulated worlds and then also about whether you could build like vr gadgetry of some kind that would let you so you were thinking about this pre-internet Yes, I was actually. My wife got me the book Snow Crash in 1991, uh, or I think 1992, yeah. for my birthday because she was like, ooh, here's a crazy science fiction book yeah. about that thing, <laughs> that thing that you right. keep talking about. So I, yeah, in college and really all through college, I was super interested just mm. before the internet in the idea, though, that we, I mean, we knew about networks and networking computers in the 80s, yeah. right? And so I was interested in this idea that, well, there's got to be a way to network computers together and create a big space. And so, yeah, it was pre-internet. And then when the internet happened, I moved to San Francisco, fortunately, you know, was mm. lucky to arrive here and be kind of at ground zero of the internet. And um, I was immediately struck by, of course, how the internet protocol would enable you to put like a lot of computers together over a big network and yeah. then wander around in the space that they created. But I didn't think it was practical in the mid nineties because we were still on modems, believe it or not. Yep. And the, the PCs <laughs> didn't have graphics cards. You've, you've written about NVIDIA. Yeah. The thing that kind of started second life was really two things. So I, I, I didn't work on virtual worlds. Instead, I worked on video compression on the internet mm -hmm. and i ended up building a little company with a friend of mine from college and then we sold our company to real networks oh, okay. where i became the cto of real networks and gotcha. so in the late 90s while i waited and you can ask my friends i'll tell you while i waited for the technology to catch up and build a virtual world i worked on streaming audio and video over the internet so i got to work on the codex basically some of the early mm -hmm. technology for compressing audio and video which was super fun and i got a great like experience working in a big kind of fast-moving startup that yeah. went public during that time and then i made enough money to be able to invest myself in this crazy virtual world idea which i started in 1999 and that was second life and in 1999 there were two things that had happened one was broadband became obviously something that was going to win so if you were in a city in 1999 and you know you were tech friendly you were probably thinking about getting broadband and we knew that broadband was fast enough to build a virtual world or to build a metaverse then the second thing that happened was NVIDIA released this one chip called the GeForce 2. Hmm. And that chip could do 3D reasonably well on a PC. Right, and right. So those two things happened. And I said, okay, I'm going to leave Real Networks. I'm going to come back to San Francisco. Yeah. I'm going to find this crazy warehouse in Hayes Valley on Linden Street. 
Ah, I was wondering why it was called Linden Labs. Yeah, right, right, right. I see. That makes so sense. So it was Linden Lab, and it was 1999. And Hayes Valley, if you love San Francisco like I do, yeah. Hayes Valley was was a very different place in 1999. It was it was it was really something. Yeah, yeah. So we had this little warehouse, and we actually started with the company in the beginning working on hardware for VR. So we worked on a thing we called the Rig, which was and still is a very unique way of putting you completely into a virtual world. And it was actually a lot like those crazy pods in the movie Avatar. Basically what we did was we immobilized your body and then detected your attempts to move by essentially pushing against an immobilizing skeleton, sort of an exoskeleton. Really? And then we moved the world or we moved your virtual hand in the world according to how you were trying to move it but we didn't let your actual hand move. Do you still have one of those rigs somewhere? We've got little pieces of it. I don't have a whole I don't have the whole rig and we're such dummies. It was kind of before digital photography. That's like a computer history museum type thing. It is, and I wanted to rebuild it and it was built out of this neat material and stuff. That it was it was quite a thing and it, it was what got my now, you know, mentor and uh, really key early investor in Second Life, Mitch Capor. He's been on this podcast. Oh, has he? Yes, he has. Oh, he, that's has. Wonderful. he and He's Frida just, have both been on this podcast. They're just incredible. They are. They yeah. are. Yeah. And so he backed you. He put money into this yeah, idea. Yeah, he was the first outside investor. Right. So I put a bit of money into it at the outset because it really was such an odd idea that even though I was pretty well known uh, for having worked at Real, I mean, I certainly had the the ability to try and raise money. It literally was something where people would just say, what are you talking about? You know, you're talking about building like a big canvas that's like a 3D space that people are going to walk around in. And everybody was like, that's just not a very good idea. (laughs) So and Mitch, for people who don't remember, he's on the podcast a while ago. He's founder of Lotus, and he's gone on to do tons of interesting stuff. Invested in tons of companies, and unbelievable. Yeah, he's just a very <laughs> cool guy. And then Mitch and Frida yes. are now uh, having a huge impact. Absolutely, on changing tech. For the absolutely, better. absolutely. So he invests. You build this thing. So when does Second Life actually? take off because if we go back to 1999 as you say still most people probably have a modem broadband is taking off kind of you're reaching the crescendo of the dot-com boom and then there's the bus 2000 2001 what is happening with second life what is the thing that kind of really sends you you know to the stratosphere at least for a while we were so heads down you know through even uh, 2001 september 11th like all those things we were just really lost in trying to build the software of Second Life. And so it's interesting, like that whole period, kind of just after the first boom ended, I don't remember it because we were just like 20 people really, Mm. really, really working hard on trying to get the software running. And I think you mentioned before, like you you definitely were like, it was a big idea that a lot of people latched onto, but I can't remember what exactly you referenced, but you said at some point it was like there was just tons of articles you would kind of become this thing that everybody was talking about yeah i i think that that idea of maybe there's a way to build another world and people Mm. are might want to go there and spend time there was such a big idea i mean what happened was we put second life up it totally was not making it you know it was a very small number of very passionate people that were using it and to access it not everybody needed the rig right no sorry yeah. uh everybody just needed a pc and a broadband yeah. connection so it was a right. pc typically a desktop pc because it had to have a gpu yeah and then it, and then you had a broadband connection so those are the two requirements so yeah we had a very diverse and but and mm. it's one of the important things about challenges with vr we had a very diverse age gender everything, background, group of people, languages that were using it, but they were a very particular, and I think this is relevant to this discussion about the metaverse, they were a very interesting and different group of people, ourselves included, and we were all in there using it. And then suddenly around, to your question, around 2005, 2006, everybody said, oh my God, you know, what if, you know, Mm. this, this project, this second life thing makes it. And then we suddenly had, you know, 100,000 people a day signing up. And we in the at the peak wow. in about 2006, I always tell this story. And, and again, I'm not bragging about Second Life, more about this idea of yeah. the metaverse or a virtual world. You know, there's 100,000, more than 100,000 people a day signing up. And there were 600 more, perhaps more interestingly, there were like 600 articles. We had one of those clipping services. There were like 600 articles written about us a day. 
a day of which like half were in print. And I love to read. And I used to say, my friends would call me and I'd say, I swear, I'm not kidding you. That There's no way at this point that I could read, you know, all yeah. of the stuff that's being written. I don't read that fast. And also, you know, the world was growing for mm. a time. The outskirts of the space that's now about the size of Los Angeles was growing at a rate, you know, where even in a helicopter, you couldn't follow the coastline as quickly as it was being built out. So I think that's really interesting. So 600 articles a day all over the world, presumably. Yes. And you say that it was growing the size of it because how does it grow? Yeah. In other words, do people kind of come in and build on their own kind of house or yard yeah. or whatever it may be into this virtual world? Right. So the thing that's very different about Second Life and still is in comparison mm. to a, uh, a a video game or something like that was that literally you built with building blocks, you mm. know, but you could build a house for yourself or a car or whatever you wanted uh, or a heliport or whatever on top of land and the land itself was hosted but it was all contiguous right so the strange thing was you know you had your your space but your space was right next to somebody else's space and if the two of you were in conflict with your building plans well you were just gonna have to work it out so there was a lot of very interesting experiments that were inherent in its design yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. in terms of like how people work together and created together but yes it was basically land that would literally rose up out of the water you know in a kind of a biblical sense i guess and then everybody would go out and buy the land as an auction, which is a, a bit like the kind of NFT stuff that's going yeah. on today. So people would go and they would put the first bid on a piece of land, which would trigger an auction. And then, because we thought that was fair. And you're playing Linden dollars or is that what they're called? You were paying a combination of Linden dollars and in some cases, US dollars, because we'd have to like take a initial fee to like set right. up the servers and things like that. But Basically, yeah, you were moving on to and then developing this land and trying to create something interesting with it, mm. with the hope that people would come and hang out and, and do things with you. But it was very right. different because it was one big continent of land, right? which was fascinating. What is Second Life today? Because I feel like, obviously, you had this moment, the zeitgeist moment, and then it's been a long time since people have kind of talked about Second Life in that way. Yeah. And then you have this metaverse kind of discussion all of a sudden bubbling back up. It's the hot new thing and all the big companies are talking about lots of startups are building up around it. What is Second Life today? Because I will, like I said to you when we spoke last time, I didn't know Second Life was still around, but it's very much around. Yes. So if you could describe what it is today, that would be great. So today, Second Life is exactly what it was then. It's a piece of software you download, you jump into this giant world that's now the size of Los Angeles in terms of if you just walked around it right. as an avatar. And it has about a million or so people that are using it. And it grew to its current size by about 2009. And then it has oh, really? stayed there. It's just stayed there. Right at you know this stable peak, whatever right. you know, whatever. But it hasn't dropped that. off either. Nope. Interesting. Right. So a million people. And then if you look at like, if you look at the equivalence to today's discussion around like the NFT, the idea of a digital object or yeah. something that you can own, there has been more than, I don't know, somewhere between like five and 10 or probably closer to like $5 billion in people buying and selling digital assets from each other in that world. Such sensed, as? Such as hair, glasses, clothing, furniture. Right. So the world of Second Life is 100% built out of little Lego block atoms that mm. are, you know, small bits of material that you can color and texture and stuff. Right. And those things are used and those things are cut and twisted and glued together to form things that are very elaborate, like a very fancy piece of fashion uh, jewelry yeah. or something like that. So it's just been this big open system in which people have built things and sold things to each other when they mm. cared to for the last, you know, I can't believe it, but 15 years now. Is there a second life like Tycoon, like the dude who has the biggest property out there or has like the big, most booming business or something like that in that world? Second Life's been quite successful at making livings for people. There are some tycoons. Mm. Um, in fact, one of the stories that was one of those media pieces that kind of mm. catapulted us into public knowledge uh, was a cover of Business Week. I don't remember whether it was late 2005 or 2000, I think it was 2006. And there was a woman named Anshay Chung, who was a famous in-world. That was, that was the name of her avatar. The name of your avatar in Second Life is a really cool thing. It's your, typically it's your 
chosen, you know, your first yeah. name combined with a last name that's kind of a super family name, which I think is a fascinating thing to relook right. at today. Right, right. So if you had the last name Powers or something, and you ran into somebody else with that name, you would know that they chose it too. And so you'd have a sense of family with them. Right, right, And right, we did right. that also because we believed, and I think this is very much an important a critical conversation today, that the right way to do identity was that you should have, you know, one rich identity in the metaverse or in the virtual world, but it shouldn't, you shouldn't be forced to use your real identity, your real world identity. Right. You can be somebody else. Yeah. And in fact, it was encouraged. We yeah. very much encouraged you to be somebody yeah. else by doing things like this last name thing where mm. you couldn't choose your own last name. You had to pick a last name from a huge list. Basically, it was one for which your first name was uniquely available. So if you put right. in the first name, you know, Marie, the system would tell you which last names were available that had not used that first name. I see. I see. Got you. So you have this whole kind of commerce, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. You have a million, a core of a million people using it. Probably really actively. It's hard to say, of course, because there's the yeah. traditional curve, but we typically say, I think on a monthly basis, there's about a million people that use it. Right. And then there's about um, a half a billion dollars a year in transactions right. and digital goods. Goes Today. On. Today. Yeah. So let's park that and then let's talk about the metaverse as it's being discussed now. You know, Mark Zuckerberg runs a trillion dollar company used by half the planet. Half of the human population is on his app. And he comes out last month and says, we are going to be a metaverse company. Within five years, we are no longer going to be known as a social network or a social media company. We are going to be a metaverse company. And trying to create this, this idea of like, you know, people kind of living, working, having entertainment, everything kind of in this virtual, some type of immersive world, presumably represented, you're represented by an avatar, et cetera. And everybody's getting very excited about this idea. From all the experience you've had in building the first of these, what is your view of the kind of what is happening right now and the vision that is being kind of laid out there currently by, by them? And, you know, even Microsoft is talking about setting up an enterprise metaverse. Roblox is talking about being a metaverse company. What do you see? It's uh, the core idea of people being together in a virtual space is and always will be as we continue to do what we can with it, you know, as human beings. Yeah. It's a big idea. However, what I would say is, as someone who has labored at this effort for quite a long time, the challenges with getting everybody into something like that are really big. The risks are fraught with peril. The, the potential for harm, the potential for worsening our human relationships with mm. each other is very significant and to be considered the challenges with getting most of us interested even in going into these virtual right. spaces is very considerable and in fact there are problems even whether you're talking about vr or even if you're talking about a desktop experience mm -hmm. with non-vr devices in both of those cases i can go into them in more detail but in both of those cases there are critical blockers that would prevent most people, the majority of people from using such a thing. So we're still very much on the very early side of the chasm. There are some assumptions or ideas that are thrown about loosely, of mm. course, about like this metaverse idea that are just not true. Like one of them is that unifying all our escapist computer games together into one big mush yeah. and calling that a metaverse, that's, that's not going to happen. Um, right. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that it won't. Uh, video games are in many cases escapist. They're yeah. not designed to be social constructs. And so uh, I think there's a bunch of dead ends that we're going to have to go down and then back out of. Well, so you talked about, and we discussed this last time, I think you had said more than once, like there's going to be a billion people living in Second Life. Why didn't that happen? Or why don't you think that will happen? Here's why. I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can, you can get me talking about this for days, and I love it. <laughs> There's a bunch of reasons. One is how many versions of yourself can you sustain? You know, like this idea, like it, we've all had the experience sometimes of like role playing at a, mm -hmm. a party. And we know that that is exciting, but for most people, very challenging, like something that they would just opt out of immediately. Similarly, with respect to virtual worlds, 
If you choose to go into one and present yourself as an avatar there, you're sort of faced with a what ends up being, in retrospect, I didn't think this at the beginning, what ends up being a pretty binary choice, which mm. is you can either be the real you, like the one that's sitting on the couch in front of me right now, or you can be that avatar, but you can't be both. Right. You have to invest the majority of your creative and your projective or your expressive energy in one of the two of those. For most of us, living in a physical body in the real world is all right. And in fact, it's yeah. our preference. Yeah. When I started Second Life, I thought that we'd all split our time. You'd be mm -hmm. half here in San Francisco right now where we are. Yeah. And you'd be half in the virtual world on the weekends or in the evenings. Right. I think that turned out to not be true because our capacity as humans for doing that is just not as good as I thought it might have been. So that's one thing. One thing is it's very difficult to maintain multiple rich, meaningful representations this, of yourself. This reminds me of just hearing you describe that. It makes me think of like, you know, you hear those stories sometimes of like, a man who has a second family in another city. And I have exactly. a wife and two kids and a whole life here. And whenever I hear those stories, I'm like, how <laughs> How do you do that? How does, how does one, one do person it? actually maintain a whole other life, a whole other family, a whole other existence? I'm exhausted by one. <laughs> totally. I think you just put that. You can, I, I'm going to reuse yeah, yeah. what you just said. That is exactly it. And I, I used to say to people, which was very exciting when we were starting, I used to say, forget about video games, forget about getting to be the hero, forget about getting to win. Yeah. I said, if I just told you that you could go into a, a closet in your house for you know two hours every night or something, and when you shut the door in that closet, it was like being John Malkovich. You literally yeah. found yourself in the body of another person. But if I further told you that it was the kind of John Rawls veil of ignorance idea that... I would pick for you that other person that mm. you would be and that you wouldn't even get to choose. You'd still be pretty interested in yeah. that idea. I mean, just to be someone else. But I think what we found, and I, I used to say that a lot when people were talking to me about Second Life in the beginning, I think what we found out was that although that, that's a tantalizing idea, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty challenging. So, so that's one thing. It's just one, though. Mm. Another one is the big idea of the metaverse, right, would be that we can do normal interactions between people in there. Mm. So an example of that would, of course, be, as you, you touched on with uh, Microsoft, would be like a business meeting. Yeah. So then you get into this question of like, for the typical person, do we yet have a virtual world in which you can have a business meeting as an avatar? And the answer is solidly still no. Right. Facebook notably demonstrated what is the very latest, you know, kind of state-of-the-art yep. stuff, very similar to what we've been doing with High Fidelity over the last six years, which was, you know, you putting on a headset and becoming a cartoonish avatar of yourself. The problem is that when you, you step actually, into a virtual kind of conference room and everybody yep. else is there, and isn't this so cool? You got a whiteboard. Yeah. All these things. But the little details of what that feels like mean that it is by no means yet ready for prime time. In particular... The expressions that are conveyed by body movement and by facial information and by gaze mm. where your eyes are looking are not yet present. And we simply don't have technology yet right. to convey that. And it's a hard line. It's like crossing the chasm. The majority of us, not all of us, witness Second Life, but the mm -hmm. majority of us do not find it comfortable or suitable to yeah. have a business meeting. And indeed, in the midst of you know the third phase of COVID, here we are talking to each other right now because to have a good conversation yeah. like this where you're triggering me the right way and we're talking right, to each right, other right. still requires face-to-face. -face. Why didn't we do this with, I would defend even my technology, High Fidelity, which mm. is extraordinary audio quality, yeah. uh, such as we have here with these microphones. It's still not good enough to have yeah. interactions. And group interactions are even harder than one-on-one -on -one mm. interactions, which we all know from the kind of classic Zoom fatigue problem. Totally. That group interactions are brutally you know even a level up in terms of not working yet yeah and so i'm curious i mean what is your take because you're also been in this world in the startup world in san francisco starting companies some of them work some of them don't some of them are great successes some of them are failures whatever it may be but it does feel like all of a sudden this is that we are having a metaverse moment and powerful companies with bottomless resources are saying this is the future how do you think this goes? Because your whole experience has been 
you know, you're going to find that core of people who are into it. And as you say, and I'd love to talk about this because I think for some people, it is kind of a savior, you know, for people who are underrepresented or who have disabilities and they can actually go into another world and be something that they're not or find support. But it is a niche. But then you have these companies being like, this is the bet we're making on the future. And I think we've seen this a lot in the past, right? Often somebody will take a niche and they'll say, Mm -hmm. I'm going to hang the billions of us yeah. kind of shingle on that on that yeah. niche and I, and I think that's what we've got right here and just like you said I think almost in a philosophically interesting way we're about to see a kind of a, a splitting so I think as you said there are people for whom working online or living in a virtual world is great is an mm. improvement over where they were before and I think that technology is going to continue to serve those people better and better mm. you're going to have Companies that recognize that they can be fully remote. Of course, there are companies like Automatic WordPress that have already done this for years. Yep. There's going to be companies that are all in, everybody's remote, and business just continues as usual. And then I suppose there's going to be companies, and and again, I think there's no hybrid in between. Then there's going to be companies that return to work, you know, maybe companies that have a predominantly, you know, young and single crowd working there yeah. and lives in London or something. And they're going to say, Hey, we want to all go back to work. But what I think is going to happen is because there's no way to fuse those two groups at the edge. Otherwise you have these ridiculous, mm. you know, kind of bad conference room situations. We're going to end up with like kind of a hard choice about that. Right. And, and I think that that is also what we're going to see with the metaverse, which is we're going to see we're going to continue to see groups of people. Those groups are going to get bigger because I think the, you know, the people that discovered Second Life and were able to make the best use of it, I do think that group of people is growing somewhat over time. For example, people are, are becoming much more comfortable with avatars. Yeah, and so for sure. you get some growth there. But I think we're going to have a fraction of us that is a specific fraction increasingly living in virtual worlds. But the big business problem is the way that you attract that group mm. of people is very different than the way you attract a casual consumer totally. that wants to have a better courtside basketball experience. The way you attract that person is completely different than the way you attract this metaverse you know, citizen or something. Right. Um, that's totally different. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You mentioned the challenges. You also referenced the dangers. And I'd love to just talk about that because specifically, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the kind of the on-ramp to the metaverse, especially for the younger generations are video games because they're so immersive and they're, they're real and, you know, these battle royale type things or Roblox, these kind of virtual worlds and it's kids playing them. So they are kind of, these are waters that are very swimmable for them, but you made a point of not allowing kids in Second Life. Why? Well, at the time, it certainly seemed to us that allowing people to do whatever they wanted to do was, and I, and I would defend that this is absolutely true, hmm. 
was critical to empowering that group of people who would find virtual worlds useful as a living place. Yeah. We had to let everybody be themselves and do everything they wanted to do, which included things like you know nudity and sex. And so from the very outset, it was kind of obvious to us that this was not a kid experience. And right. so we aggressively made that so. And as you say, I, I think when you talk about something like Roblox, I am struck by, and I didn't think about this at the time, that the fraction of people who as adults mm. would like to wholly live in a virtual world is small, you know, yeah. which is why it's a smaller group. It's very empowering, but it's smaller. However, if you're 12 years old or 10 years old, your desire to experimentally live as an older person yeah. is almost, you know, it's hundred percent, right? Yeah. Kids really want to do that. So the idea of building virtual worlds that enable kids to experiment with their identity, to, to grow up a little bit, is obviously a very potentially big idea because mm. of the audience size. However, we have to do that with enormous care Yeah. because there are, you know, as a parent, I can absolutely say that there are certainly dangers to that experimentation, you know, how, how those worlds are built. So I think that that's an example of one of the risks of this kind of metaverse thing is that mm. it might be differentially harmful say to kids but i think there are tons of other risks that we can address as well like what what comes to mind when you think about the kind of some of the the potential pitfalls well this whole echo chamber thing in facebook mm. groups and stuff that we're talking about as a population now could be worsened if virtual worlds are designed wrong what do you mean? If virtual worlds are closed rooms that are like private clubs that you get let into if you've passed yeah. a test or something, then we're likely to see a, a worsening of the kind of echo chamber homogenous communication problem. Why would it be worse? Because it already feels really bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> could, it, could it get worse? Maybe it can't get yeah. worse. But is there something about, you know, getting together as an avatar with a bunch of avatars that kind of is, makes it feel more real or more kind of visceral? I mean, in short, yes, right? I mean, right. the ability that you have to fall for an idea mm. when you're talking to somebody face-to-face -face yeah. is better. I mean, the great, you know, cult leaders of history did not do... They didn't do it over Zoom. <laughs> or, you know, we've written letters, right? Yeah, they didn't do it over Zoom. They yeah. did it They did it face-to-face. -face. And right. so the more face-to-face -face you make technology, the more mm. powerful it is as a kind of a focusing lens for different ideas. Now, if you look at Second Life as an example, you can make this work, but it requires an effort, an active effort. And, you know, maybe it's an effort that we as a society, or maybe it's not a financially beneficial effort. That effort is to put a lot of people in chance serendipitous contact with each mm. other. And that's what Second Life is like. For, right. To a large extent, Second Life has, and you can certainly go in there and walk around and ask people, don't ask me. Second Life has been a tremendous force for good with identity exploration, with people meeting each other and mm. finding common ground. Right. Or, you know, people meeting that had, you know, very different, you know, histories that would almost guarantee their, you know, getting into some sort of standoff. So I do think that it can be done right, but the rules, the low-level physics, if you will, of the virtual world has to be done to accommodate that. And I think, I worry, that those low-level rules are at odds with maximizing revenues and returns. And that's the thing that we're going to run straight into here. I think seducing people mm. into a homogenous viewpoint is much more of a moneymaker than serendipity. Yeah, and that's the other thing. How do you make money in this world? Because that's what's also interesting is that, you know, there isn't a whole economy with a virtual, kind of, let's call it a cryptocurrency or whatever you want to call it, in Second Life. But presumably, if Facebook is building this thing, it's going to be ad-driven. And so you're, you already have companies, you already have um, artists, music artists kind of experimenting with these concerts inside Roblox and these type of right. things. But it, it is, it's interesting to watch the kind of the commercial forces try to figure out how to kind of elbow their way in here and, you know, open up this vast new, potentially vast new waterfront for revenue. Yeah, I think that is exactly and well put. I, I think that we, we must re-examine and probably move away from advertising. Mm. Um, That's a difficult one. I know. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, given it, that Facebook and uh, Alphabet slash Google are worth like $3 trillion combined. 
But it is possible. Um, and this is a case where, despite the, of course, as we touched on before, the many, many serious problems with uh, blockchain-based technology, such as energy use, but mm. the idea of levying small transaction fees on things that people do experience yeah. as digital assets, that's actually a better idea. I mean, that's an example of something that is potentially a lot less harmful. And it's more pure, right? It's more kind of direct. You kind of know right. what the product is that you're paying for, or yeah, the transaction, I mean, or the interaction, or whatever it may be. Yeah, like has our society been irrevocably damaged from having there be a 2 to 3% fee on a credit card transaction or a PayPal transaction? No. That's yeah. actually fair trade. And mm. so long as there's competitive financial services, and there are, yeah. that's a fair situation. And so I, th I think when we look at things like blockchain and technology being used to make it easy to make something and sell it to people and thus create a very larger market of potential somethings, um, that is a movement in the right direction. But advertising, of course, and big brands is not because they're going to always tend to try to collimate interest onto one product category. I think, and, and this is, you know, one of my pet peeves, I think that the general ability we have to sort by views mm. on things like YouTube and TikTok are themselves deeply problematic as well. And, and by the way, one of the things that's cool about Second Life was in Second Life, the people you got to know were your geographic neighbors. And that meant that everybody had a different set of geographic neighbors. There isn't a YouTube in Second Life. Right. So if you say, who's the best person at dancing as an avatar? I don't know. Mm. You're going to have to walk a long time to find that person because there's no native ability in Second Life to score to and then surface that right, person. Right, right, right. And teleporting is kind of hard and all this stuff. So, right. so again, we have to build the metaverse or whatever the metaverse is. I, I, I don't even yeah. want to say that word, but we have to build virtual worlds. We can build virtual worlds so that they do not have these problems of like, concentration of wealth so to speak you know that, that we're seeing with uh with youtube and uh tiktok right right and that the other th area i wanted to kind of just cover because i think it's important is just the interface so mm -hmm. virtual reality augmented reality whatever it may be so i think facebook is about to release some kind of smart glasses they're kind of teasing it uh, as we speak they've been working with ray-ban um, and these smart glasses, I imagine, it looks like initially they'll at least be able to record kind of your field of vision and maybe in the future project Creepy. digital images onto the real world, et cetera. And then there's VR, which is an Oculus headset, which you put over your face and then you are kind of immersed in this world. But there are issues with both of those. Yeah. You know those issues better than anybody. What are they? There's a whole bunch. First yeah. of all, head-mounted displays, virtual reality HMDs, as we all know today, most predominantly by the Oculus Quest, are very, very not ready for prime time yeah. for a few reasons. Um, one that I wanted to kind of touch on first, I think they're the easy ones. Like the easy ones that everybody knows if they've tried it is you can't type. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't type, you can't use your phone. If I put mm. an Oculus Rift on you, if I put an Oculus Quest on you, and then I phone you, while you're wearing it, we yeah. have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so simple things like that. We can't we can't type at a normal speed. And no. being unable to type at a normal speed is, especially for younger people, is an absolute non-starter. Yeah. So one thing is that, that you still can't use a normal computing stuff. You still can't use your phone while you're wearing these headsets. Another one is you can only wear them for about 30 minutes, typically, because they're too heavy. Um, and so they oh, become really? uncomfortable. They right. strain your eyes. Um, yeah. A significant minority of people are made nauseous by using them, mm. which is a terrible problem. But I want to touch on the one, those are the easy ones. Yeah. <laughs> I want to touch on the one that I think is the most important and relevant to society today, which is how divisive they are. Putting on a virtual reality headset that blocks your vision is essentially the same as putting on a blindfold. Yeah. And it, you can ask a question, which is in a room with other people present, who among us are comfortable putting on a blindfold? And the simple answer there would be confident, big, white men yep. are comfortable putting on a device that blindfolds them so mm. somebody else can put a kick me sign on them, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For that reason alone, I think we have to stop and really reconsider where we're going. Mm. Because giving people a hard, an expensive, and of course then there's money, you know, an expensive hardware device that is comfortable only to people that are dominant and 
kind of unafraid in the real world is not a path that we want to go down. And if the metaverse is a sausage party, no one's going to want to hang out there. Right. Nobody comes to a party at which there is not an almost perfect gender balance, right? We all know that from real life. Why would it be different in the virtual world? Yeah. That's one thing that's completely lost in this conversation because obviously Facebook has a huge investment in Oculus. And as I think you had mentioned before, it wasn't like, you know, we were all forced into this once in a century situation. We're all forced online in a way that we weren't before. Finding new comfort zones online, but it's not like the Oculus all of a sudden was flying off the shelves. Right. It was surprising, right? We yeah. well, It wasn't surprising to me, but it was uh, confirmatory to me because we had decided as a company to stop working on the VR mm. headset in about 2019. So when COVID came, it was a good test of it. Yeah. And what we saw was that while COVID, of course, uh, you know, drove sales of almost everything that that would be kind of usable indoors during lockdown it didn't drive vr headsets and also the people who bought vr headsets still had the same experience that they did pre-covid which is you use it once or twice and then you put it in the closet right and it it doesn't come out again and that's for all the reasons i described but yeah going back to what you said that just the fact that women are somewhat more likely than men to be made nauseous because that's also been shown right in research right So there's the the blindfold issue, but it's also makes them sick more, more often. Sick. Yep. It makes women more sick than men, period, full stop. And that alone means that you can't have a good party. What about AR? What about this idea of, you know, because everybody from Snapchat, Facebook yeah. to apparently Apple and everybody in between are working on glasses that will, you know, son of Google Glass that are supposedly going to be less creepy and work better. But this idea that you could kind of project onto the real world digital images or your email or whatever it may be and not stare at the black mirror in your hand, but just have this, you know, the interface on your eyes at all times. We've tried experiments like wearing AirPods in transparent mode while talking to each other in meetings. Mm. This is at, at High Fidelity. We've also tried the experiment of wearing glasses that are normal glasses that have no lenses in them. Both of these things are distracting and upsetting to people when they're sitting and talking to each other. Hmm. So what I would say about AR is, yes, but the challenges there to get to AR are even greater. Greater? I have to be able to see your eyes while we're doing all... In other words, if we're really present with each other and you're wearing an AR device, now I need to be able to see your eyes because otherwise you're sort of suddenly not here. Yeah, at least when I'm looking at my phone, I know you know I'm being an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) exactly you're not like scanning the inside of your new google glass eyelids so with ar i think there are two areas of concern well before we get to the kind of you know big companies screwing Mm -hmm. everything up just as pieces of hardware there's the problem that they need to be lighter longer battery life kind of all the problems with vr just kind of double down with ar and then there are these complicated social human factor issues, which is what I was trying to touch on by saying that even wearing pass-through earphones, try Mm. it yourself, is really uncomfortable when having a conversation with somebody. And we've we've done simulations in high fidelity because we work on spatial audio where the two of us are talking to each other here on the couch and then over in that chair, there's a third person. Yeah. But you can hear them spatially As with if your headphones. Sitting there, yep. right. And if you turn and face them, you, you hear them right there. Right, and right. It's, right. it's amazing. It's really cool as a demo, but I can tell you from trying it that it's surprisingly uncomfortable as an mm. experience. So the reason is that your brain assigns a kind of ghostliness to that imagined voice. Right. And I think that that is a problem that we're going to run into with these AR devices that's actually pretty significant. And again, it causes divisive usage patterns and stuff that we haven't anticipated yet. In the long term, I think the idea of overlaying information on reality is is kind of interesting. I often ask with AR, I say, well, if you could have stuff about you floating over your head that every stranger on the street could see by just looking at you with their smart glasses, what would you choose to share? And I think the answer is very little. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think, again, the idea of doing something like chasing Pokemons with AR glasses is pretty cool, but that's a pretty specific and narrow experience that I, and and again, I like as a, as, as an entrepreneur living in this time of crisis that we're in right now, I don't care. Like if you can build a better Pokemon game, that's a distraction to people while the world burns. I don't think we should even build that. Yeah. I want to get to that. What you were saying kind of made me think of 
it feels like, and you can tell me whether I'm wrong, and again, you have a perspective that few other people have, is part of the problem here when we're talking about the metaverse and everybody's going to delve, you know, billions of people are going to live in this virtual world for, you know, a good chunk of their lives, just underestimating basic human behavior or misunderstanding it. Because it feels like that's a lot of the problems that end up in big tech, tech, whatever. It's just like, well, we can actually build this really cool thing. Let's just build it without thinking, well, what is that actually going to do to people? Do people actually want it? Does it jive with actual, with humanity, with how people like to interact and how society works? Is there some kind of basic disconnect here that perhaps we're overlooking? I think there's probably a few. Mm. Um, One question is, is it more rewarding to be forced to share a world together in which we all have finite resources and we have to figure out how to use them together? I think the answer is yes. Right. We keep saying as technologists, no. Let's go to Mars. We're going to colonize the moon and then on to Mars, right? It's amazing. I don't think we actually want to do that. I don't think I don't think we'll look back on a life where we left our dying planet behind and went to another one to live out a kind of a to scrape by you know, trying mm. to terraform it or whatever. I think when you look back at the end of that life, you're going to regret it. Mm. You're going to feel like you did something kind of wrong. Like you should have forced yourself to bear out the dispute you had with your neighbor or figure out, you know, how to not heat the atmosphere. It feels to me like being forced to share things is actually fundamental to our experience as, as beings. Right. And so that's one thing I would say I agree with you. I think it's easy to, as technologists, myself included, to just think that more is always better. To run away from scarcity, yeah. To right, r- to run away from scarcity. Right. And what is your sense? I mean, we were talking before we started recording about, you know, these big societal problems like this disinformation echo chamber ecosystem that has built up or climate change. And I'm always struck by, you know, I'm in this place and I meet entrepreneurs every week. And there does feel like there's a shift and that there are more people thinking about, okay, we actually do want to take on these big problems and not just like the next app to make a billion dollars or whatever. I'm glad to hear you say that, 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 that it feels that way. Yeah. Does that feel that way for you? Because obviously you you know, you, I'm sure talk to other CEOs, venture capitalists, people who are kind of have had success, have some resources who actually can put money to work or brain power to work in these areas. I think if, as a technologist right now, I, I think that you have no soul and you probably don't have kids if you're not working on one of these huge existential mm. problems that we have, climate change, wealth inequality. I think we're at a point in, we've made all this good stuff in the world, yeah. but we absolutely have not distributed it equally. Yeah. And we, we know that we're going toward more inequality in that regard, not less. You know, we face these big problems. Uh, we have to uh, navigate the course toward AI, toward more and more powerful AI with care and stop doing things like advertising or stop letting AI participate at all in advertising. So I do think that um, if you're not working on that right now, you're nuts. I mean, you know, how could you not as a, an entrepreneur with any capacity to choose your next project, not aggressively choose? And I, and I agree with you. I, it does feel a little bit like with California basically burning up, yes. for example, like people are starting to wake up and say, oh, my goodness, I, I, I guess I need to work on this now. I hope that continues. But the, that's what's so interesting is like uh, with the pandemic, the concentration of power and wealth has I mean, it has gone up exponentially. It is incredible what has happened just at the big tech companies and the amount of power and money that has been concentrated in their hands just in the past 18 months. I wonder, you know, with all that power and all that billions pumping into their systems, will it, you know, where's the incentive to upset the apple cart? I think though, and I'm an optimist. I Mm. mean, why wouldn't you be an optimist? It's It's a good way to live. I do think that it is inevitable that with technology, we do empower more and more people overall. And I think that things like kind of the the broad sort of societal conversation about like cancel culture mm. is fascinating, right? Younger people are saying, we are in control, yeah. gang, and we're going to start 
hitting buttons. We're going to start making control decisions as individuals that are collectively amplified in some fashion. I think that that kind of a conversation, technology conversation action is going to go on. And we are going to have a situation where a larger and larger number of people can vote on things, if you will, you know, writ large by making, you know, say buying decisions. And uh, I think that that is, is a hopeful direction. But yeah, I mean, the dystopian possibilities are you know, are, are equally grave. It, it feels right now, like as expected to some extent, that the exponential progress of technology is opening up both, you know, good things we can do and bad things we can do. Whether one of them is in substantially greater than the other, it's hard to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really interesting. I just come, come back full circle to the metaverse. I read Snow Crash. I have a friend who's an artist and he gave it to me from not long after it came out. I'm not a huge sci-fi person, but I remember just devouring that book. It was amazing. Uh, but the whole concept of the metaverse is deeply dystopian. <laughs> right. As everybody's been saying that <laughs> yeah. Stevenson himself used the word as a kind of a derisive, you know, this yeah, is exactly. awful kind of word. Which is so funny because it's like the metaverse is this thing where, you know, hero protagonist escapes yeah. because the world is basically run by a few corporations and the work has been gigafied and society has been torn asunder. So you have the metaverse as this place where you kind of go and exist and kind of escape. To get away from the nightmare, yeah. Exactly. And then you have somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, and you can argue the merits of Facebook one way or the other, but it is inarguably this giant misinformation machine that has helped divide a lot of people and helped foment some really horrendous things around the world. And now he's talking about creating the metaverse. Yeah. It's like the book is coming to life, but the nobody's the people who are kind of pumping up this ideas are not mentioning the whole context of the <laughs> of the very concept itself. Yeah, and do we work toward a future in which we worsen the real world so much that virtual worlds become more compelling? I, for one, want to make not one dollar on that. You know, I mean, mm. that seems like a terrible thing to do. In 2019, when we sat down as a company, High Fidelity, and and tried to think about what to do next, given that these VR headsets weren't working, we took a look again at virtual worlds. And in doing that, myself and my co-founder, Ryan, we were writing a series of prompts, as we called them, to try to get us as a company to think more broadly than, say, Mm. video games about virtual worlds again. And so we made up these fictional stories that were stories about possible futures. This was in 2019, so it was before COVID. And um, one of them was the idea that if there was to be any good outcome between AIs and people, and many many more people than me are kind of have this perspective, what you probably want to do is create a world in which the AIs can live mm. separate from the world in which people live so that they are safe there from, our, from potential harm from us, and we are safe from, say, communicating with them more than we want to. Right. So that was one of the prompts we wrote. We said, you know, if we're going to build, you know, these AI descendants of ourselves Mm. or something, perhaps we need to build a virtual world for them. And what would that virtual world be like? And if we could go there, say, as visitors, what would that be like? And if they were our hosts and kind of the native people that lived there, what would that be like if we were the visitors? So we talked about that. And another prompt we wrote was this one where we said, imagine that Trump before he leaves office, manages to get us into a limited nuclear exchange. Mm. And as a result, something you know, something happens, some, some cities get blown up, and everybody heads for the hills and goes inside and won't come outside anymore because the metropolitan idea has become so dangerous because of this conflict. Uh, COVID, basically. COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we guessed at yeah, COVID. Yeah. At the time, Ryan, my co-founder, said to me, you don't think that you don't think that Trump thing could really happen. I said, no, I don't, I don't think yeah. it could happen. <laughs> but yeah, it did, yeah, yeah. it just yeah. in the form of a, a virus. But yeah, I mean, I myself am kind of troubled by the question of, you know, do you almost like admit defeat, you know, to coronavirus and try to build ways for us all to stay inside but still have socially meaningful mm. interactions? Or do you do something else, you know, to try and, I don't know, uh, you know, get people together in real life? I don't know. It's one of the things I think about at this point in my career. I think about it a lot, and I don't know. I I think it's possible to create meaningful, present, compelling uh, interactions between people. But as we touched on earlier in this conversation, it's by no means easy. And none of the stuff that's out there today yet does it. How old are you, can I ask? I'm 52. 52. So you've been at this for a long time. Yes. And we're talking about some of these crises that technology has certainly exacerbated. 
So are you still a techno-optimist or are you in your 50s now, are you kind of a grizzled kind of like everything kind of <laughs> sucks or is we're headed toward a, a dark place? I'm an optimist. It's, yeah. my, it's in my, you can see it in my face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in my being. But I would say I'm a much more pragmatic mm. optimist. And what I hope I can offer in the second part of my career, whatever that looks like, is a realistic and, you know, critical concern about mm. these sorts of things that we're talking about. So do I think that virtual worlds can be a force for good without question? Look at Second Life. Yeah. It certainly is. I have the emails to prove it. I mean, mm. there's no question. Especially for people for whom real life is really a struggle. Yeah. What if you're old and you want to be young again? What if you're disabled? What if you're yeah. What if you're living in a rural condition where you have very little interaction with people in a way that's meaningful? Of course, go yeah. online. But we really have to figure out how to do that right. And I am an optimist. I'm a, you know, I'm going to aggressively continue to examine that. But I do think that the challenges are much harder. I'm being much more respectful and honest about the challenges than I say was 20 years ago. Right. I was much more sort of messianic and yeah. in my, oh, we'll just build this big virtual world and we'll all go into it. I don't right. think that's a safe, you know, thing to just say. Um, so yeah. I'm an optimist, but it's, I'm trying to be a realistic one. And, and for myself, I, I think this wealth inequality and inequality in general is you know, beyond climate, I don't, I don't know how to rank that with climate yeah, change, but yeah. it is a tremendous problem. And I want to, personally, I want to use technology to set that balance better. Right. That's what I want to do. So I don't want to work on things that are expensive. I want to work on things that are inclusive as it relates to people's psychologies. For example, the manner in which you moderate and allow people to moderate their interactions online is completely important in mm. terms of whether or not it's inclusive. You know, if you build an online world that's based on sound, for example, which we've certainly done with High Fidelity, does it give women and men an equal voice? Right. And those are design choices that are made in, you know, not not so much the top-down moderation. I don't believe that's the way to go, but it's their design choices around like, can you get away from people that you don't like in the right way? Can you adjudicate, mm. you know, who's in and out of the conversation? And, you know, there are some companies that are doing uh, good experiment thinking about this, but right. that can be done right but it's got to be done right for this yeah. to work before i go i have to ask how was burning man <laughs> post or in the time of covid you know what the word for burning man is hope because you got 15 to twenty thousand people mm. just went out last week to the desert with no organizing systems whatsoever yeah. no porta potties much much smaller police presence than in the normal oh, really? yeah yeah because the uh you may not know that the tickets at burning man which there were none this year, so it was free, and that was interesting, also and wonderful. The there were uh, no tickets this year. Yeah, well, as you may know, or you may not know, in 2020, Burning Man was canceled, and in 2021, yeah. it was canceled as well. Yeah. That is to say, the organization that helps to put on Burning Man, which is a nonprofit, the Burning Man organization, decided, you know, because of COVID concerns, to not host the event yeah. in the desert in 2020 and not host the event in 2021. So, in both those years, including last week. We had the non-event, which was the renegade. And the reason for I this see. is that the Black Rock Desert, in which the event is held in Nevada, is Bureau of Land Management land. And therefore, mm. it is public land for everyone. And so I there see. are no restrictions on your ability to freely go out and drive onto that land at any oh, time you care to here in the United States. And so that's what people did. And so last week, myself included, Somewhere, I mean, we don't have the count because who yeah. knows, uh, we, but we all estimate, you know, those who have been there before, it's easy to estimate, but probably about fifteen to 20,000 people showed up in the desert last week wow. with absolutely no organization or moderation right. or tickets or anything. And the tickets were free. So if you had always wanted to go to Burning Man, but you hadn't come, now it was free. And you know what it was? It was, it was wonderful. Amazing. Cool. And do they still have like the big Burning Man thing? No, the, right? the Bureau of Land Management, which is the part yeah. of the federal government that oversees that desert, did forbid big fires. And so we didn't have right. big fires. But we did have right. a drone. We had a drone Burning Man, which was cool. A drone Burning yeah, Man? Yeah, one of those drone, which as a technologist, I have to tell you, it gives you it gives you chills to see it happen. The, uh, drones now can fly in yeah. perfect formation. And they've got these, you've probably seen it, they've done them over like major cities yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
but you can fly these drones and you can have them fly in patterns and it's yeah. just it's shockingly cool to see it it's you know it's like a beautiful flight of birds that are in this yeah, perfect yeah, formation yeah, 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 yeah. and you know showing they made a big burning man with the drones that was turning around it's no amazing. way yeah it was quite something to oh, see that's very cool. but all of this with no organization right just right, i right, in right. fact i don't know who the drone I don't know where the drone team came from, or I'd credit them here. Right. I don't know. <laughs> right, right, right. I don't know what group they're with, but they had hundreds of these little drones, and they went up and turned lights on, and you could see them. That's very cool. I'll have to check that out online. Um, well, look, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I think it's a fascinating time. It's a scary time, but it's fascinating, and um, I'm going to choose to be optimistic as well. I'm glad. <laughs> it's great to talk to you. This thank you. Fun. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Philip for being so generous with his time and for letting me hang out on his very comfy couch. Um, and I forgot to say, I should have said at the top, I was so excited about all the kind of metaverse type stuff we were talking about that I didn't also mention Philip's current company, which is called High Fidelity. They've developed some really cool spatial audio technology. As he mentioned, they also were previously working on virtual reality. Just doing a lot of really cool stuff around this whole idea of virtual worlds and making them actually work and be positive for society. So as I'm sure you gathered, he's thinking very hard about all of this stuff. And, you know, I'm just um, really happy that we got to get his perspective because, you know, he's been doing this stuff for a while. And these are really complex problems and they're rife with potential pitfalls. So anyhow, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the ratings. Thank you for the reviews. Thank you for spreading the word. And um, that is it for me. You can find me as usual in the paper. Uh, I'll be in the paper this weekend at the Times, of course, thetimes.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Thank you. Thank you. Have a fabulous weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Want more out of this podcast? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews, broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. 